Beloved, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ready our hearts to hear his word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now to ask your blessings upon all that we have just announced from the Grief Share group to the Perspectives group. We give you thanks that you have called us into existence as a church to show mercy and to spread the message. To, Lord, grieve with those who grieve at the same time, to take the good news across the globe that we might rejoice with those who rejoice to discover eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we thank you that you have made us your family and given us your mission. And we pray that you would give us grace to be faithful. We know, Lord, that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We believe the Bible to be the words that have come from your mouth, that you have breathed them out. You have moved prophets and apostles to write down your very thoughts that we might have them and live by them. We believe your word is alive, that it's active, that it will search out our hearts, our intents, that it would expose us in the gracious light of your holiness. And we want that. We want that, Lord. Discover us now. Expose us now. Bring us into the light of your word and help us by your word to be the people of God you've called us to be. Remind us of things that you have taught us before. Teach us new things. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Give us hearts to believe that again, we might reflect your beauty and your glory in the world. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Love, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5, as we continue our study through this fantastic book of God's Word. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, you've you've actually kind of parachuted into a pivotal section of the book. This is the turning point in this bit of history of God's people. And let me introduce it by, by saying this, that the idea that what you don't know can't hurt you is a lie. It's a big lie. What you don't know can, in fact, be catastrophic to you. In this chapter, we're going to consider three of the main actors in this history. We're going to think about King Xerxes or Hazarus. We're going to think about his queen, Esther. And we're going to think about his number two man, his advisor, Haman. And in some sense, at this point in the story, they're all acting in ignorance. There are things happening that they do not know, which in point of fact can be devastating to them. I mean, in chapter 4 and chapter 3, Esther doesn't know that Haman has convinced the king to pass a law to kill all the Jews on a single day. She's Jewish. The king doesn't know that his wife is Jewish. She's been passing. He doesn't know that he has 
signed a law that effectively sentences his own wife to death. And Haman doesn't know that Esther knows about his plot. He too doesn't know that Esther is Jewish. There's a lot of not knowing going on as we come into chapter 5. And everything these folks don't know is a threat to their survival. It's a threat to their life. What we don't know can, in fact, destroy us. Now, the question is, how do we live in the midst of not knowing? How do we continue in the midst of of not seeing the path, not seeing the road, not knowing the next step to take or the next word to speak? I mean, we finished Esther chapter 4, and Esther has made that famous declaration. She says, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. There's a law in that land that if you go to the king uninvited, the penalty is death. But she's resolved to go see the king, not knowing. How does she make that resolution? How does she come to that point? The king is just doing kingly things. He's just about his business, unaware of things that are going on, uninvolved at the level that he should be. Haman is scheming and plotting. He's doing lots of things, none of which seems to have God in view. They present to us three different ways of living, two ways broadly, but three different actors here. And as we think about their lives, we're going to see what's really important. We live in the in-between of not knowing and the fulfillment of God's promise. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on three things. Number one, Esther puts her faith into action. Esther puts her faith into action. That's what we'll see in verses 1 to 8. And in those same verses, we want to make a second point, looking then at the king, that the king shows grace to Esther. The king shows grace to Esther. Then finally, we want to consider verses 9 to 14, where Haman comes into view. And this is what we learn, that Haman allows sin to rule him. Haman allows sin to rule him. And we can live either like Esther or like Haman. And the difference is grace. Look with me at Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is 
If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The first thing we want to observe is Esther. And we want to see how Esther put her faith into action. And in several sort of actions in verses 1 to 8, we, we get a glimpse into Esther's faith. The first thing we want to see is that by faith, Esther steps into her own. She steps into her own as both a Jewish woman and a queen. You remember, up until this point, Esther has been passing on the, on the encouragement of her cousin Mordecai. She has not told anyone that she is Jewish. So here she is, this Jewish woman living inside of a, a Babylonian empire where the Jewish people are, are exiles who have been conquered by Babylon, now in the Medo-Persian empire. They are subjects scattered abroad with, with very little in the way of, of, of rights and self-determination and things of that sort. And Mordecai has said, don't, don't let nobody know. Right up until the end of chapter 4. We're in the end of chapter 4 now when Mordecai learns about the plot to kill all the Jews. He's come to Queen Esther and said, now it's time for you to stand with your people. And at first, Esther is responding in this afraid way around verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. But by the end of chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, she says, you know what? Tell all the Jews in Susa and I and my servants, we're going to fast for three days. And then after that, I'm going to go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And in that statement, She's stepping into her own as a Jewish woman. She's beginning now to identify explicitly with the covenant people of God, with the Jews. But not only that, look in Esther 5, verse 1. Before she goes to see the king, she puts on her royal robes. It's almost an insignificant detail if you're reading fast, but, but what it hints at is that this is the moment in the story where she steps into her own in terms of the, the providential calling God has on her life. She is queen of the empire. She puts on her royal robes, signifying her, her part in, in the royal family. And she is now going to go in the, in the sort of strength, in the position of the queen. 
Karen Jobes in her excellent commentary on Esther points, points out that Esther, quote, is referred to by name 37 times in the story. In only 14 of those references is she, quote, Queen Esther. And all but one of those 14 references to her as Queen Esther occurs after Esther chapter 5, verse 1. You see what she's saying? Before this point, she's just Essa, Esther. She's Hadassah. She, she's just basically a, a young, beautiful woman. But now when you come to chapter 5, verse 1, and she's called Queen Esther, something has turned because in the rest of the book, most of the time she's referred to, she's now called Queen Esther. She's stepping into her own by faith. Esther's role and royalty are now redefined. She now becomes the one who God is using to deliver his people. By faith, she steps into her own. Now, beloved, becoming who we are meant to be requires that we step fully into the identity and the roles that God has prepared for us. We can't flourish if we're faking. We, we must come out as God's people, and we must embrace God's assignment. There's no other way to flourish, especially as sojourners and exiles. You see, passing has a short self, uh, shelf life. At some point, the gig is going to be up. At some point, you're going to have to actually declare who you are. And, and Esther has reached that point in chapter 4, and now she's about to act on that in chapter 5. And this is when she really begins to flourish as a woman of faith, not hiding, but standing out. Not sort of ducking her queenly role, but stepping into it. Beloved, I'm, I'm led to believe after 20 years of pastoral ministry that there is in any room this size some number of Christians who are still kind of playing double dutch with that line. Am I going to be out or am I going to hide? Am I going to step into what God has called me to or am I going to shrink back? Step out and step into what God has assigned to you. It is the place of our flourishing as God's people. Now, notice now, secondly, by faith, Esther shows up for her people. This is, this is what I, how I would summarize verses 1 and 2. When verse 1 starts, we don't know if Esther has the king's favor or not. To go to the king, remember, was to risk her own life. But notice verse 1 says there that she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You can almost feel the butterflies that Esther must have felt. She's no doubt holding her breath and holding herself up straight. The servants have all frozen. Everybody's wondering what's about to happen. You can almost feel the palace room then breathe a sigh of relief when the king extends his scepter and welcomes Esther. I mean, the palace room may have been a room about this size, and Esther's on one side of the room, the king's on the other side of the room on his throne, and praise God he's not nearsighted. He recognizes Esther and his affections are stirred up for her again. 
Esther has showed up. Faith put her on that spot. Faith put her in the hallway across from the king's throne looking at the king. It was on the third day, the text says. The third day of what? Well, it's the final day of the fasting that they had committed to. So for three days, she's been preparing herself spiritually, seeking God in fasting and prayer. And and she's been doing that with the support of all the Jews in Susa doing the same thing, not eating, not drinking, neither night nor day, but seeking God and calling out to God for this very moment. For Esther to show up. This is where she puts into action what she declared at the end of chapter four. I will go. If I perish, I perish. How many of you know sometimes we talk big but don't show up? All of us have done it. You see it throughout the Bible. Peter, you remember Peter says to the Lord, Lord, if everybody deserts you, I won't desert you, Jesus like, (laughs) before the rooster crows. Peter talked big and disappeared. We're all vulnerable to that. But the first step in successful living for God is showing up. She she spoke those things and then she followed through on those things. Now, there's something else I want you to see here. Don't forget the context. She's not showing up to the king just for her own sake. She's showing up for her people. She's not putting her faith into action for selfish gain. She's putting her faith into action and her life on the line to stand in the gap for people who are marginalized and oppressed and about to be murdered. She's standing in the gap for a a conquered and exiled, a marginalized, a a dehumanized and on the verge of genocide people. Sometimes the place of God's grace is not the area where we work for ourselves. Sometimes the place of God's grace is in that room, in that area, when we show up for other people. We live in a day when some preachers tell us we must, what, step out on faith, right? We must put our faith into action. But have you noticed that we're almost always told to step out on faith as it relates to something we want? The job, the business, you know, whatever, you step out on faith to get that thing that you want. Have you also noticed that in the Bible, faith is not just a private individual thing. It's a public and a corporate thing. And that, that faith that's discussed in the Bible calls us to lay down our life for other people. It seems that Jesus isn't so much interested in us getting as much as he's interested in us giving even giving our lives for the marginalized. And that's what, that's what Esther is doing here now. She's taking all that she has had in the way of privilege. She's taking all that she has had in the way of God's grace. And now she is stepping into her own. And now she is showing up, not for herself alone, but she is showing up for a people who have been enslaved, essentially, exiled, refugees, who have no other advocate. This is biblical faith, beloved. Notice one more thing. By faith, Esther strategizes for survival. 
She strategizes for survival. That's how I'm summarizing verses 3 to 8. Notice her strategy. The king asks her in verse 3, basically, what do you want? He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. So the king's in a good mood. When he says it shall be given to you even in the half of my kingdom, doesn't mean that literally. That seems to be a, a way of speaking in that day that just indicated generosity. We see this in a scene in the New Testament, too, don't we? You know, this terrible scene with Herod and Herod's stepdaughter dances at that party. And he says, you know, it pleased him so much. He says, tell me what you want, even to the half of my kingdom. And she asked for John the Baptist's head on the platter. You got to know what to do with that kind of generosity. So he asked Esther, what, what do you want? And Esther's interesting. Esther's been reading the, the wife and the woman's playbook. Esther is a, a good social psychologist. She, she does something here that social psychologists would call the law of compliance. The law of compliance says it's, it's harder to get people to do really big things for you if you ask them that right off the break. You know, somebody come to you and say, hey, look, man, I'm... I'm I'm broke right now. Can I get like five grand? Can I get like $5,000? Like, no. No, you like that. But the law of compliance says if you, if you start with smaller requests and people get in the habit of sort of uh, agreeing to smaller requests, they are more open to larger requests later on. Now, wives have known this for millennia. Brothers, we just walk around dumb, right? And so you, you she says, not free my people or save my people. That's the big request. She doesn't take her big shot right away. She says, will you come to a feast that I have prepared, you and, you and Haman, a small request. And she knows her husband, I think. Because in chapter one, when this book starts, what is her husband doing? He's partying. Six months long, he's partying. Now she is sort of saying, come to a feast, and he's never seen a party he didn't want to go to. And you notice what he says, quickly, get Haman. Let's go to this feast. And so they do. Now they're at the feast, and verse 5, the, the, the king, or verse 6, excuse me, a second time, the king asks her, what, what's your wish? He, he promises a second time to, to be generous to her, to give her whatever she wants. Now, an impatient person might try to shoot their shot right here. Esther has gotten them away from the throne room, gotten them away from the other servants. They're in a more comfortable setting. They're in a more private setting. And an in-person person here might want to spring the request on them right away. But Esther plays it cool. She, she makes another small request in verses 7 and 8. If it pleases the king, you and Haman, come again to another feast. I'll prepare for you tomorrow, and then I will tell you what I want. Now, I want you to notice something subtle in the text. I think the king's heart is moving steadily toward Esther in affection. Did you notice in verse 3, the king called her Queen Esther? Notice now in verse 5, he simply calls her Esther. I think there is the dispensing of royal protocol, and there is the growing of marital affection. Esther's getting him ready for the, the big request. She's buttering him up. My mama would say he got his nose wide open. She's being strategic. 
And just a couple of applications here. You do realize that faith does not contradict planning. And that faith is not in a hurry. It's a patient thing. Faith faith should prepare us to wait. Faith should give us enough self-control to sort of prepare things for the optimal time. And, and faith should cause us to have an answer to the question, what do you want? What, what, what do you want? What can I do for you? And, and I think it's the case that some Christians are not ready for greater service to God because they have no idea what they want. Or we only show up for our personal wants, but, but not the wants of others. Faith calls us to want again to want big things in the name of God, to want big things for other people, to want to do God's work God's way. And that's Esther right here. And another application, especially for those of us who see ourselves as advocates, what do we learn about advocacy looking at Esther's example of faith? Well, perhaps... We should think about the fact that faith, again, doesn't require us to shoot our shot right away. Sometimes people in their zeal, particularly if it's motivated by anger, if in their zeal will come at others with the biggest requests, the biggest demands that must be fulfilled right now. That doesn't get us very far, does it? We're loud, and we might even be right, but we're not effective. And so we look at Esther, and we see Esther now building a relationship. We see her isolating the decision makers. We see her buttering them up with with dinner. We we see her using her privileges and using her her role as queen to to get next to the, the power makers and the decision makers and to predispose them to deciding to do what's right. Some of us are just satisfied with making demands. But that's not good advocacy. Few people make progress that way. Sometimes the best advocacy for the marginalized is inviting the powerful to sit at our dinner table. Sometimes the best advocacy is sharing a couple of meals, opening our homes, preparing the ground for making the big request. But that requires faith. It requires us to believe that God is in control enough that we can just have dinner one night. That's Esther. She steps into her own. She shows up for other people. She strategizes for getting the results that she wants. Now, think about the king here in these verses. In the king's response, we we really begin to see a a marvelous picture of generosity and grace, don't we? In fact, we look at this king and we get a very dull picture of the king of kings. We get a glimpse into what God himself is like. I mean, in God's grace and providence, King Xerxes does not kill Esther for coming into his presence in the throne room. Instead, he he welcomes her. Look again at verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. 
And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter. The king was not obligated to welcome her. The law was clear. She knew the law. Everybody knew the law. By the terms of the law, she deserved death. That was the just penalty. And had he put Esther to death, the king would have been within his rights. That's why this king is a picture of grace, isn't it? He treats Esther better than she deserved. That's grace. Mercy is being punished less than we deserve. Grace is being given, treated better than we deserve. And that's, that's what Esther receives here when he extends the scepter and she goes over and touches it. The entire scene is a glimpse into a, a greater king who shows us a greater grace. It's interesting. Many commentators thinking about this passage of Esther remark on this third day thing that the first one begins with. And they, they take us back to a, a kind of Jewish saying, a Jewish tradition, which says that, that, that Jews never have to suffer more than three days. And they build that really on a number of references in the Old Testament where God's deliverance seems to come to Israel in three days. Jonah is in the belly of the fish, three days, three nights. Esther fasts for three days. There's several examples like that. And many commentators, even a, a Martin Luther, for example, looks at this text and says, actually, this scene of extending the, the scepter and touching the scepter is a, is a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's what we see in the Psalms. We read in Psalm 45. It's what we see in the, in the second Psalm. It's God who rules and extends a royal scepter in grace to his people. And so people see here a dim picture of the gospel. And I think that's correct. Again, in the gospel, we have the, the king of kings enthroned. We cannot appear into his presence because we are sinners. And he is holy. And he is so infinitely holy that if we were to go into his presence as sinners, we would be consumed in an instant. And he is so infinitely holy and righteous that, that in fact, he will not tolerate sin, but he will punish it. He has pronounced from the Garden of Eden that the punishment for sin would be death. And we deserve that death. But the same God who rules in holiness and righteousness is merciful and gracious. He has punished those who believe in him less than our sins deserve. How does he do that and still be righteous? Well, he has punished his son in our place. And all the righteous anger of God is poured out on the son of God who has taken the place of sinners so that we sinners don't have to suffer his wrath. But we have mercy. And more than that, he has dressed us in royal robes. That the righteous robes of Christ have become our robes through faith in him. All the righteousness that Jesus performs, all the obedience that Jesus performs to the Father, all the ways that Jesus satisfies the law is credited to us when we turn from sin and put our faith in Jesus. And so by grace, we are declared righteous in front of God. And by grace, we are welcomed into the very throne room of God. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us in dying for our sins and rising from the grave three days later. Did you know that? That is good news. That the king of glory has opened the throne room and said to sinners, come. 
come through faith in my son. Come trusting his sacrifice for your sins. Come believing that he is risen from the grave. Come knowing that he sits at my right hand interceding for you. Come knowing that his blood still cleanses. Come knowing that he is coming again for his church. Come to me knowing that I have prepared for you a house in my kingdom. Come knowing that I have spread a feast for you and we shall feast for all of eternity. Come knowing that you will never die. Death and sickness will never claim you. Instead, your body will be glorified so that you can live with me forever. This is the king who says, come to him and live. Come to him and live. Beloved, if you're here this morning, that's God's invitation to you. To turn from your sin, to turn from going your own way, and turn to him in faith. And faith in God is always met with grace from God. God is kind. He is merciful. He is forgiving. Trust him. Trust your entire self to him. Believe on his son and live. If you're here this morning and you'd like to know this king, we'd like to introduce you to him. You've got questions about what it means to follow Jesus or questions about how it is your sins are forgiven or questions about what to do with your unrighteousness. We, we would love to tell you the Bible's answers to that. We would love to introduce you to Jesus and help you to follow him. So this morning, don't rush off to watch the football game. Don't rush off to lunch. This morning, spend a few minutes here with us that would change your entire eternity. Come to the King. Receive his Savior. Live in his grace. And Christian, this is not something that's true only when we come to Jesus for the first time. You realize this is true our entire Christian life. You realize that every time we go into the presence of God, yes, we sinned last night. Yes, we sinned this morning. Yes, I was cross with my kids. Yes, I said something unkind to my wife. Yes, I I did these things that I promised I wasn't going to do anymore. You realize that every time we come to God, we still come to this gracious God. But he is still forgiving. He is still merciful. He is still loving. In fact, nothing we've done has surprised him. It was all already nailed to the cross thousands of years before we did it. All that's left is grace. All that's left is mercy. You realize that this is what makes our prayer life effective. We're always coming to a God who's extending the scepter. We're always coming to a God saying, what do you want? Oh, beloved, develop an answer to that question. Oh, be ready, to, be ready to answer that question. God says to us, you know what? Anything you ask of me, I will give it to you. Anything you ask in my name, you have it. We have such great promises in prayer that if we would only come to God, he would extend the scepter and say, let it be done. Doesn't that make you want to pray? Oh, I know we struggled to pray. I know we struggled this morning to pray. We struggled last night to pray. In fact, this week, we have barely prayed. But remember that the way into God's presence is not based on your past performance. It's based on his present grace. He was always full of grace. 
always full of grace. Well, come to him, beloved. Let your request be known. Ask small things of God. Ask big things of God. Start with the big things. You don't have to practice the law of compliance with God. You realize that God is not grudging toward you? He's not stingy? His fist isn't tight. His hand is open. He says, what do you want? Not up to half my kingdom, but the whole kingdom is yours. This is our God, beloved. Isn't this a great God to have? Trust him. Go to him. He's full of grace. Now, I said that things we don't know can hurt us. Haman doesn't know God. That's killing him. Look with us, number three, at how sin rules Haman. If Esther is a woman of faith, then by comparison, Haman emerges as the man of sin. This next scene, verses 9 to 14, show us Haman leaving the feast with that he just had with Esther. And in this scene, we get a good look at how sin dominates his heart. We see it in four ways. Number one, that his anger fills him. You see it there in verses 9 and 10. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And again, for those of you who are just joining us this morning, there's a lot of history packed into this verse. That Haman is the descendant of an Amalekite king named Agag. Mordecai is a Jewish descendant of Kish, the father of the, the first king of Israel named Saul. Saul defeated Agag centuries ago. The Amalekites hate the Israelites. They're the first uh, enemies of the Jews. And earlier in the book, Haman is described as the, as the enemy of the Jews. He's seeking to kill not just Mordecai, but to, to, kill, to kill all Jews. And what pops this off is the fact that the king passed a law that everyone needed to bow to Haman whenever Haman came through. But there's one person who won't bow. That's that man Mordecai, that Jew. And Haman comes out of the party. He's on cloud nine. He sees Mordecai. Mordecai like what? Haman is vexed. That's why he wants Mordecai killed. That's why he wants all the Jews killed. Listen, powerful rulers and oppressors hate it when the oppressed won't bow to them. They hate that small act of dignity that you refuse to bow yourself. It's as if, it's as if they, that, that Mordecai knows what, how Dr. King put it so well, that a man can't ride your back unless you bent over. And Mordecai refuses to bend over for this man. And that, that, that ticks him off. He's angry. So he, he leaves the feast happy. He sees Mordecai. He goes away angry. Isn't it interesting how one small negative thing can quickly sort of erase all the positive things that happen in our life? Is that just me? They also will be talking back this morning. We Baptists. I mean, isn't it amazing that one negative thing can change our entire mood and mental state? With one look at Mordecai, Haman goes from being on cloud nine to the Bible says in verse nine, filled with wrath. I mean, as a, as a pastor, I can receive 10 encouraging comments on a sermon. And then one person have a little bit of criticism. 
guess which one I spend the most time thinking about? That criticism. Uh, as a husband, I can go spend a lovely weekend with my wife. She look at me right now like we overdue. Amen. <laughs> go spend a lovely weekend with my wife. I mean, it could be harps and birds and rose petals, all that. And then in the, in the car ride back, she say one critical thing about my driving. Heart fill up with tension, car fill up with tension. It's like we ain't even been away for the weekend. See, she laughed because she know. I mean, why does this happen? Because we petty. We trifling. We proud. We lack self-control. We turn our focus away from God's grace and blessing. We want everything in life to benefit us and nothing in life to burden us. And don't we sometimes slip into thinking that other people exist for our pleasure? So we get angry at the slightest provocations, preacher and people. Listen, an angry person is an unpredictable and dangerous person. This is especially true when they're leaders with some amount of power like Haman. That's why 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, when it talks about leaders in the church, says things like this, that a leader should um, be, be not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. And think about it. This is just good theology. If God himself is slow to anger, how much more should we creatures be slow to anger? And, and anger is a problem. We just apply this not just to leadership, but to our society. Anger is a, a problem in our society, isn't it? We really must stop treating anger like it's respectable. Anger is closer to folly than wisdom. L listen to a couple of passages. You can write these down and look at them later. Proverbs 14, verse 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. You realize that conquering our emotions, controlling our anger is a greater act of valiance and courage than even conquering a city? James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be what? Quick to hear. Slow to what? Slow to speak and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And yet we live in a society where anger is pervasive. It's everywhere in our culture. We talk a lot about a toxic this or a toxic that, but somehow we fail to realize that the main ingredient making things toxic is anger. Many hearts are toxic. Because they warm themselves by the fire of anger and wrath. Beloved, let, let God's people put anger away. We may not be able to expect much from society, but as Christians, let us, let us heed God's word. Right? So, so Christian, sinful anger, like that of Haman's, is as our brother Colin taught us a couple of weeks ago, that's a fruit of the flesh, according to Galatians 5.20. 
Verse 10, I know, says that Haman restrained himself. He didn't, he didn't act on Mordecai. He kept it moving, but that doesn't mean that his anger was over. He doesn't get rid of anger itself. Just because he doesn't go off doesn't mean he's not a ticking time bomb. He's seething and simmering in wrath. You know, there are different ways to be angry. There's explosive anger. We talk about it in terms of going off. But there's also Cold War anger. We talk about, you know, giving somebody the cold shoulder. It's still anger. It's a different manifestation, but it's still anger. And, and Haman chooses that Cold War anger. He goes away and he, he's letting it simmer. And that's why the New Testament commands Christians to put anger away. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Paul uses all those synonyms there for, for anger. He will make sure he, he hits our word. I wasn't angry. I was just malicious. Well, yeah, that too. Put that away too. I wasn't angry. I was just talking about him. Yeah, yeah, slander. Put that away too. Right? And so he says, put it away. In Ephesians 4.26, he says, this is the kind of anger that we should not let the sun go down. We should deal with it even before we go to sleep. So if we are Christians, let's put away anger. If we are leaders in any capacity, let's be sure we do not lead out of anger. And this applies to husbands with their wives or guys with their girlfriends, parents with their children, employers with their employees, deacons and pastors with church members, civil servants with citizens, elected officials with uh, politicians, presidents of the, the student government association with other classmates. This applies everywhere. That we should not lead out of anger, but out of love knowing God's gracious love toward us. You see how Haman's anger fills him? Notice the second thing in terms of Haman's sinfulness. Haman's pride fails him. That's what we see in verses 11 to 12. If, if, hanger, if, if Haman's anger fills him, then it's also true that Haman's pride fails him. In verse 10, he gathers his wife, Zeresh, calls his family and friends. Hits everybody up on WhatsApp and group me and says, come on over, man. I got something to tell you. In verse 11, Haman begins to boast. He boasts about the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions that, uh, that he's gotten from the king, how he's above all the officials. I mean, it was like hanging out with a Lakers fan or a Cowboys fan, just always boasting. Ain't that right, Colin? Just bragging all the time. And he saved his best for last. Verse 12. Starts to name drop the king and the queen. So, yeah, I had dinner with the royal family today. And, and it's becoming an everyday thing. She invited me back tomorrow, too. I, I wonder what kind of people stay there and listen to that. You know, I mean, these are things that they obviously already knew. I don't want to see your treasury unless you're going to break me off some, bro, you know. But they're there. They're sycophants. They're there with him. And all of this pride in human wealth and human achievement, notice now, it doesn't satisfy him. It fails him. Look at, look at verse 13. 
Haman says here, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. (laughs) Really? Your money don't mean nothing because that man's sitting at the gate? Your kids don't mean nothing to you because that man's sitting at the gate? You don't care about your position in the kingdom because that one man sitting at the gate. Haman is really showing us the truth of what Jesus says in Luke 12, 15 when he says one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Don't chase things. They will fail you. They will not fill you. It is not what defines life. Haman is coming to understand that, though he doesn't yet realize what the answer is. Notice the third thing about how Haman's sin rules him. It's there in verse 13 is two. Haman's idolatry defines him. When, when Haman says, nothing matters to me, as long as Mordecai is sitting in the gate, I think he's demonstrating to us that his hatred of the Jews and his plan to destroy them is actually an idol. It's a functional God. This man hates Mordecai so much that he thinks his life is meaningless unless Mordecai is damaged. That's how an idol functions in our life. That's how we know that Haman's hatred has become a false god. An idol is anything that we think that we cannot live without. If we don't have it, life is meaningless. If we have it and it's taken away, life is ruined. Whatever it is, then it is a functional idol. Haman's functional idol is the destruction of the Jews. We have to ask ourselves not about Haman, but about ourselves this morning, don't we? Is there anything that if you don't have it, or that if you have it and you lose it, you feel like your life is meaningless? There's anything that produces that in us. That thing is a false God ruling in our lives. That thing needs to be smashed. It's demanding our worship. That thing is what we need to repent of. The only thing that can legitimately make us feel like we will die without it is Jesus. The only thing that can legitimately be worshipped in this way is God. God is the one person without whom life is truly meaningless. Haman does not understand that, and many people today don't understand it. And so, beloved, again, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, maybe just looking at Haman's life is helping you to realize that you've been living for some things and even serving some things, maybe even defining your life based upon those things, and they are not God. Maybe you've been tasting the sense of dissatisfaction in those things, the lack of fulfillment. Well, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to admit what you have come to see, turn from those things, and turn to the one true God. The Lord God himself will satisfy you, will never fail you. Your life may not look like what you want it to look like. He didn't promise you everything that you want. But he does promise that in him, 
we will find pleasure forevermore and satisfaction. So for your own joy, turn away from things that don't satisfy and turn to the one God who does. Let's look finally at Haman's fourth sin. Notice Haman's foolishness pleases him. Haman's wife and friends offer Haman some counsel in verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. <laughs> now, this is, this is crazy. This is crazy to me. I don't know about y'all. Y'all read the Bible. I don't know if y'all have reactions like this, but I'm like, what? Haman's wife, Zeresh. Now, here's the thing. If, if you're ever going to be named in the Bible, you don't want to be named in a scene like this, right? Right? Zeresh and her friends seem to have no conscience. They are basically saying, murder for breakfast and then go have dinner with the king. They are basically saying, build a monument to your pride. They're saying, listen, build a gallows. Build this, this wooden structure on which people would be hung. Build it 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet high. It's not just an execution device. It's a monument to Mordecai's pride, right? Build this thing big. And notice, they're saying, don't, don't delay in the morning. Go talk to the king. Have Mordecai put to death. They don't say, hey, look, wait a minute, let's think about this thing for a minute. They don't say, wait a minute, I know you're angry and whatnot, but really you should consider your blessing. They're the kind of friends that say, do you? No matter what you means. They're the kind of friends that are like, yo, we're we going we gonna to ride with you, man. Whatever you want to do, let's do. Now, we all need friends who ride with us, but this is not an episode of Thelma and Louise. We don't need friends who are riding with us off the cliff into sin and wickedness, right? And they're like, no, yo, go. You, you don't want Mordecai to sit at the gate? Kill him. Like, what? Then go have a nice meal. We don't need friends like that, beloved. We need friends who would love us enough to tell us the truth. Remember how 1 Corinthians 13 describes love. Verses 4 to 6, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. See, by that definition of love, Haman has nobody around him who loves him. By that definition of love, Haman don't love nobody either. We often talk about Job's friends and how they were so discouraging. But we need to also be on guard against Haman's friends and how they encourage the wrong things. See, Job's friends failed to comfort Job, but at least they were trying to point Job toward what they thought was righteousness. Haman's friends are comforting Haman, but they are encouraging him in wickedness. That set of friends is as dangerous to us, more dangerous than Job's friends. Friends who would try to make us feel good about doing evil are not friends at all, beloved. 
Friends who would encourage you in unrighteousness, who would encourage you in sin, and then encourage you to do something that takes your mind off it are not friends. There's somebody who would tell you to do dirt in the morning and then let's go party in the evening. They are not loving you, beloved. They're not. Those are not the kind of people we need in our lives. But Haman's foolish in his sin. And this little plan, the text says, pleases him. So I just want to end on this note of friendship. Because this text applies to all of us in some way, doesn't it? Adults and children and teenagers. Let us stay away from so-called friends and sinners who entice us to sin. Let me sort of give you two passages from the Proverbs as we close. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 to 19. And, and if you're looking for something to do as a family for like family devotion, um, might I commend to you Proverbs chapters 1 to 9? Just read sections of those first few uh, chapters in the Proverbs because really what's happening there is a parent is instructing their child in wise living. And, and one of the things that, that they gets to very early on is friendships. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 to 19. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Don't agree with them. Don't go with them. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. So he's saying, if you got friends like that, talking about, come on, let's ride, let's do dirt, let's, you know, let's rob somebody and, and we'll split the money. This is what Proverbs says. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. That could have been written about Haman looking to attack the Jews and plunder them of their wealth and split it in the kingdom. It could have been written about Haman's wife and friends and family saying, oh, go, go hang them and do your thing. I wonder how many of us this could be written about. Hopefully we are not the friends who are enticing people to sin. And hopefully we are wise enough as elementary school kids or high school kids or college kids or adult kids. Our middle school kids, I thought I started there. Okay, middle school kids too, says the middle school teacher. And the middle school kids are like, don't forget about them adult kids. It's for all of us, isn't it? That one of the wisest decisions we have to make is who to befriend and who we let influence us. Avoid Haman's friends. Be a godly friend. Last text, Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, 
profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes people kissing all on you, they're actually demonstrating that they're enemies. Folks who are kissing all on you, giving you flowers, bigging you up, when you know you're talking about something wrong, they're not friends. They're enemies to your soul. That kiss is a lot like Judas's kiss to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the kiss of betrayal, according to Proverbs. But notice now, true friends will sometimes wound us. But those are faithful wounds. Faithful are the wounds of a friend because they won't, they won't let you go off in the direction that they know is destruction. They won't let you run off into sin. And it might hurt a little bit to be told about yourself, but we all need friends who tell us about ourselves, who challenge us when it comes to righteousness, who push us back away from the cliff of destruction. Maybe you have some friends who have wounded you by telling you the truth. Maybe you've been tempted to think that they are not friends. Actually, beloved, biblically, they're your best friends. They're the ones who love you, are faithful enough to wound you so that you might be healthy. Keep those friends by your side and you'll keep far from destruction. The great irony in Esther chapter 5, Haman built this big old gallow to hang Mordecai. Not to give away the story, but if you already know the story, he's going to be the one to swing from it. Sometimes, sometimes, the trap we lay for others is the trap we get caught in. So as we live in this in-between time of not knowing, let us be people focused on faith and trusting God. Let us step into our own. Let us show up for others and let us strategize and plan to be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we trust that, Lord, in your word in Esther 5, there are things for each of us to hold fast to. First of all, let us hold fast to your grace. Let us hold fast to your kindness toward us in Jesus, your son. And never let it go. Let us keep coming to you, knowing that you are gracious, forgetting about our performances, simply to enjoy you and to rest in your presence. And help us, O Lord, by your grace to to step into our identity as your people and step into the roles that you've called us into, to embrace those callings fully as an act of faith in you. And grant, O Lord, that we would would indeed be a people who show up for others, who show up for the persecuted church, who show up for the persecuted neighbor, who show up for those who who look like us, who are being marginalized and mistreated, and to show up for those who don't look like us, who have been marginalized and mistreated. For Lord, if if we only love those who look like us, what kind of love is that? That's self-love over a wider area. But your love crosses boundaries, includes the other. Grant that we would live in that kind of love. And Lord, help us to, with wisdom, live in this wicked world, 
to, Lord, think carefully about our next step, our next word, to lay plans, Lord, not to harm others, but to lay plans that, that Lord, deliver others. We don't want to be Haman building gallows that we will swing on. We want to be Esther preparing meals that will lead to redemption. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.